it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Winging It with Vince Carter and Annie Finberg is back in full swing for its second season. Catch up on recent episodes with guests like Wyclef Jean, who talks about growing up in Haiti, hip-hop as a teacher, and performing with a goat. And you can hear from tennis phenom Coco Goff on beating Venus Williams at 15 years old. You can listen to Winging It on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. David, a sports writer or someone posing as a sports writer asked a Minnesota Vikings player for his gloves after a playoff game last week and then allegedly sold those same gloves on eBay. Oh, man. What I want to know is if you had to ask an NFL player for anything at his locker, what would you ask for? So the obvious answer is like the playbook, right? Something like that. Something yeah, that could I mean, help I'm, your I'm, job. First of all, yes, the playbook would be fantastic. I'm not sure that I mean it, it would be like asking for like you know a copy of the Bible in Greek. Like I wouldn't be able to read a single part of it. But um, I don't know. Like every, I feel like in sport, like everything is so disposable, right? I mean, every game they have. I'm sure there's a. I mean, there's a there's a different pair of gloves, different pair of shoes, different jersey, if not multiples of some of those things. Um, Gosh, I have no idea. If I was, if I'm, am I looking to make money? Is it just about the money? Yeah, or it could be your personal collection. I don't know. A memento you want to save, give to your kids someday. Sanitary socks. I think I would just go. Listen, uh, if if since somebody's already since already is someone's already beat me to ask for some article of gear and uh and and then sell it on eBay like that. Like we've already gone to that level of. Odd and creepy. I think I would just one up him and just ask for like a lock of their ha- a lock of his hair. Maybe <laughs> is that is that at least I, at least there'd be you know like a good a good like Twitter story about me someday. Are you carrying scissors or do you have to borrow some from the trainer? You're oh no, yeah, I, def- I definitely box? have. <laughs> I definitely have some like safety scissors from a, from a preschool class just to make everything as as uncomfortable as it can be. We are that unlabeled bottle of pills of media podcast. This is the press box. A part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. You've got Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer here. Lots and lots to get to today. We'll talk about how Twitter may have saved us from war with Iran. We'll talk about how Facebook is protecting the integrity of the 2020 election, at least uh, according to Teen Vogue. We'll crack the case of the glove-stealing sports writer, plus have the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, against perhaps my better judgment, I want to start with the Royals. Yeah. Duke and Duchess of Sussex, a.k.a. Harry and Meghan. On Wednesday, they decreed that piping hot content should be distributed across the land. The Duke and Duchess announced via Instagram that they are stepping back as senior members of the royal family. Uh, They're going to split their time between the UK and North America. They're going to become financially independent and carve out what they call a progressive new role. The Daily Mail reports a dramatic decision was taken without the knowledge of the Queen, Prince Charles, or Prince William, who learned about the announcement as it broke on television news channels. A source close to the process, I mean the palace, tells the Mail, quote, the royals were shocked, saddened, and downright furious at the couple. One described the decision as, quote, pressing the nuclear button. Tina Brown was on CBS this morning 
analyzing the story she was put on this earth to analyze. <laughs> if the palace had known about it, and I actually do think that they did, why couldn't there have been a statement of we're aware of this decision, we support their decision, we're working out all the details, as opposed to the messaging that they sort of went rogue and now everybody is very upset? It could have been messaged very differently. Well, I think, uh, you know, in the moment, people are aggravated. You know, I think mm -hmm. that they feel, they do feel blindsided a little bit, not by the decision, but by the, the fact that it dropped like a, mm -hmm. like a hand grenade uh, into the uh, space, as it did. I want to talk about this first, David, as pure intravenous content yes. for the world press. Is there anything else that would bring together Piers Morgan the front page of the New York Times and the podcast Ringer Dish. What other story well, could bridge for, that chasm? First of all, I'm disappointed um, in all the fine folks at Ringer Dish for not inviting you and me on the show on the emergency <laughs> pod to discuss this turn of events. Um, there's really nothing else. And there's sometimes when something permeates uh, you know all the all the very all these uh, such uh, disparate news outlets to such a point that you feel you know you you roll your eyes a little bit at it but this is like a real life situation too i mean like i was in uh i was i was on a phone call and when when this push alert appeared on my phone and i walked back into the relatively small ringer new york bullpen and i was just like what is going and before i could get what is going on out of my mouth i realized that like everybody in the room was talking about it and this is, there are no Ringer Dish uh, uh, correspondents in the Ringer New York office, just for the record. It was pretty shocking to see everybody there so engaged in the subject. The minutia goes in a million different directions, but it really makes a lot of sense because as our kind of, me as the various media empires have split into, into you know, various shards over the years, you don't necessarily go to the New York Times, or some people don't go to the New York Times first and foremost for like, cultural coverage or pop culture coverage right but the but the royals have taken on this incredible pop culture mantle um but 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 it does have a serious news perspective too because of the you know international affairs angle and um it kind of seems like you know there's the netflix show the crown which is fantastic it just seems like as as increasingly as like functionally insignificant as the you know the the royal crown continues to become the more you know, we're obsessed with them in this sort of, this sort of, you know, more meta way. And, and, uh, and I think in some sense in recent years, our obsession has become based around the question of why we're obsessed in a certain way. You know, it's this sort of like third, now we're in like the third degree, third tier of like meta analysis, I know, but like, I feel like every six months I read a piece on why, why we're, why we're obsessed with the royal family. And, uh, and we are obsessed. We are, we're just obsessed. So what, you make a great point there, which is that they seem to get more irrelevant as monarchs by the day. And, and indeed, part of this decision seems to be on Harry and Meghan's part, making themselves less relevant on purpose. Yeah. But our interest in them doesn't wane. And in fact, all it takes is something like the crown to come on TV to get everybody interested in the royals like we get interested in Dolly Parton again every seven years. And that's fascinating to me because you mentioned like there's the them as sort of pop culture figures and this whole industry there. But what sorry, what is the serious thing that's happening with this? Like what what world what world affair will be 
impacted by this? Is it going to be impacted by this? U.S. standoff <laughs> with Iran? I mean, this this actually won't mean anything, right? Beyond, am I am I missing something obvious? Um, I, uh, I I am for for all of the the light reading I've done on the subject and all the office conversations I've engaged in, I'm still a little bit blurry as to the actual significance of this, even as it pertains to the royal family. Um, the Instagram post or whatever, the, however this announcement was made, was was uh, formal but vague, as such things tend to be. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, and there is a way in which you could argue that Harry and Meghan, ha- of all the royals since you know Princess Diana, have the, probably have the most power in this moment to affect something like Brexit, you know, or to affect to, to affect something on a global scale. Just due to their popularity, um, but this them you know divorcing themselves from the royal family or whatever they're actually doing, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any real repercussions to it. No, and there's a lot of serious pieces to be written about the future of the monarchy, about the UK, as you say, those sort of thumb suckers about why are we so interested in these people, about mm-hmm. race, about all kinds of things. But the and, and, and in fact, there's a lot of meta media criticism to be done as we're kind of doing right now. But I, I guess that's and I guess that's why it touches everybody so well, because there's something for everybody in the story. You know, there is the there is the sort of pop culture entertainment tonight part of it. There's the, you know, the Tina Brown part of it. There's mm-hmm. the there's the kind of self-reflection. Like, why are you watching this part of it? I went to the Daily Mail website yesterday and the Daily Mail can be pretty much considered a pretty reliable barometer of our base desires. And these mm-hmm. are the stories in order. Number one, the Royals. Number two, did Iran shoot down a passenger jet? Number three, Leo DiCaprio saves a dra- drowning man in the Caribbean. And number four, Paul Krugman. So that those are your power <laughs> rankings right there. One to four. But the Royals in the number one spot. I also went looking for front pages. I think the Daily Mirror sort of sort of one which was a very elegant simple headline they didn't even tell the queen (laughs) that's pretty good right they didn't tell the queen but there is this you know and and it's funny because i think in america we have this in 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 including here at the ringer we have this whole as you say kind of quality of like oh my gosh let's let's analyze this both being kind of interested in it but also just being interested how how cool is it that we get to have our interested in the royals period just like you know pre-ironic america got to have it with princess diana right so we get we get to have this kind of meta quality then you go to the british tabloids and it's just it's just we're we're all in right there's there is not in many cases that sort of that sort of distance like I, i'm looking at piers morgan i'm looking at uh pieces in the mail that called Prince Harry, the Prince of Woke. <laughs> what is that even about? Wow. Like, what? Um, and are having, and if you read the sort of, if you read the news pieces, the mail, it is this very, very serious, we are angry about this. You know, we, on, on, on behalf of our readers, we are going to sound very angry about what Harry and Meghan is doing. Uh-huh. So not, not only do you kind of get different parts of the media, uh, you get all these different keys too, all these different registers, and it's just pure content. 
like I, I can fully understand as as again insignificant as maybe the Royals have become in a real way, as significant as they could be become in a pop cultural way. I can fully sympathize with that with with that uh you know performative disgust of uh of, of whatever news outlet decides to put on that face. Um if you're paying millions and millions of dollars to the royal family to just subsidize their lavish lifestyles, the least you can expect is that like they're not allowed to opt out, right? <laughs> and that they <laughs> they have to stay and they have to maintain they have to stay in the public eye, they have to subject themselves to our tabloid coverage or else what are we paying for? It this and this is literally a topic that has run through Harry and Meghan's lives recently. They held out their eight month old, now eight month old son Archie. They wouldn't allow cameras to come to his christening. The British press made that exact argument we're talking about. Wait, we are subsidizing your gajillion dollar lifestyle. Why don't we have <laughs> access to this? Caroline Davies writes in the Guardian that this move is a quote escalation of Harry and Meghan's war against the British tabloids. Essentially, there is there's a whole part of this that is that it's media criticism. If you read their new website yesterday, I mean, this goes back to 2018. The Mail on Sunday printed a letter that Meghan Markle had written to her estranged father. They got a hold of the letter and printed printed every page of it Um, on this new website. The Duke and Duchess talk about how they're going to change this system and no longer participate in what's called the Royal Rota system, where you sort of have to give access to accredited UK newspapers, Davies writes. So they're going to opt out of that. They want to speak directly to the public through social media. Okay. They want to work, they said, with grassroots media organizations. I'm not sure what that is. And quote, young and up and coming journalists not have to be at the mercy of the British tabloids. Why does Harry hate the tabloids? I'm glad you asked. Here's a clip. Diana, Princess of Wales, is being remembered around the world. Harry's mother, killed in that infamous car crash in Paris as her driver fled the paparazzi. The moment that would forever taint Harry's view of the media. Those people that that caused the accident, instead of helping, were taking photographs of of her dying on the back seat. And then those photographs made made their way back to to news desks. So I think understanding this, on the one hand, is we want to change our lives. We we don't want to be full-time royals is understandable, but it's also at we don't want to have the media requirements of being full-time royals. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the financial independence thing takes it. I mean, we're going to have to dig into that a little bit more for it to have any great significance, right? I mean, it's you can be financially independent, but like all of this, like if, if the, 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 you know, the fortunes that they're taking with them are, are presumably still tied to, uh, you know, financial dependence broadly defined um i'm also a little bit unclear how one like pursues a, this is a, you know maybe maybe this is just overly american or, or modern of me but i'm not quite sure how one achieves any sort of financial independence at all without a last name like don't you have to have don't you have to have like i don't know what the what the, 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 the they don't have like social security cards in the uk but presumably there's some sort of like identification card necessary for you know for like Signing up for your 401k. Um, Just to fill in the form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it's a uh, no. I mean, listen, we all understand what they're going through. We all understand their their point we of view. And, and the, well, I mean, listen, you're I'm followed not saying around we, by tabloids. People are publishing handwritten letters that you send to your parents. No, that's not happened to me. I'm saying that I would I would I would be bristling at that, too. I'm sure. Um, 
and and I and I you know I, I'm sympathetic to to what they're to what they're going through. I, I think that um, I think that you know that 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 part is easy. I mean, I think that part's easy to wrap one's head around. The rest, but but the intrigue, the you know the 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 uh, kind of you know battling going on at the you know at Buckingham Palace between these various parties and and who know who knew what when and and uh you know how these sort of decisions get ironed out i mean the only reason we have any kind of like concept of it again is because of the crown and you know and and various books that have been written um and so it's it it's 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 endlessly enthralling just to 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 imagine what's going on megan's estranged father thomas markle there was a famous this is this has got to be one of the great royal watcher media moments of all time so right before their wedding there's this whole question of was he coming to the wedding and and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. He was photographed in an internet cafe in Mexico, in Rosarito, reading a story on the com- on a computer about a wedding, <laughs> about the wedding. It was like mm-hmm. the all-time pathetic photograph. Like, I've, I'm having <laughs> to go to an internet cafe and log on to learn about my daughter's wedding. And then he was, he was charged with having conspired with the paparazzi to stage the photo. Because then the photo, of course, sold for a gajillion dollars. So <laughs> you have this this dad, this American dad sitting in a Mexican internet cafe reading about the royal wedding. Then that turns out again allegedly to have been a co-production with paparazzi photography. That's just incredible. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. I don't know what the American equivalent of that would be. But that feels like something that's just perfectly fits with the British tabloids and with their interest in the Royal family. All right, David time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week yes. where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they're always gratefully received. Let's not leave this topic yet because no. the ringers very own Amanda Dobbins set off the overworked tornado siren yesterday when the news about Harry and Megan came down. Oh yeah. Because all of Twitter was overworked jokes about the Royals. So this edition of the overworked Twitter joke will be all Royals as well. Are you ready for the gold in ruffling ascending order of funny? Yes, please. Uh, Number one, Harry and Meghan are resigning to spend less time with their family. (laughs) Number two, anybody calling it Megxit? (laughs) That's fantastic. Number three, I can't wait until season fill in the blank of the crown. Yes, yes. Number three B, I can't wait for Meghan Markle to play herself on the crown. Yes. Number three <laughs> C, I have watched three seasons of the crown. I know this decision was only cemented after several deep sighs and longing stares. <laughs> Number four, perhaps obligatory, Harry and Meghan are joining the athletic. <laughs> Number five, for you college football fans, Harry and Meghan are entering the transfer portal. (laughs) Number six, damn this dude Harry was buried on the depth chart. (laughs) Number seven, laughing my ass off, Harry and Meghan turned Buckingham Palace into the New York Knicks during free agency. (laughs) And number eight, and perfect for our ringer audience, this is what you call load management. Thanks to John Xavier Deal, Alhosa Kukak, Don Steele, Paul Boston, Nick Field, Dave Mulhern, Ed Gana, Isaac Chip, Street Courier, Deep Breath, Brad Rowland, Tim Simpson, Tim Sampson, excuse me, 
JW, Alex Hungerford, Adam, Michael Mason, and Johnny C. If you created a royal pun that would have made lunchtime o booze proud, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Do you also see this very <laughs> funny headline in the Chicago Tribune? But it just it? had a picture and said Northwestern graduate moving closer to home after spending time abroad. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that the Chicago Tribune is just doing like onion shtick now. Like we're, we're just running headline <laughs> and photo and just like letting you get the joke. It's great stuff. How to save America's dying newspapers. Is, uh, yeah. Gag headlines. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. I wanted to share with you this great piece by Garrett Graff in Wired. About how Twitter may have stopped war with Iran. Last week, of course, Donald Trump ordered the killing of Iranian spymaster Qasim Soleimani. As retaliation on Tuesday night, Iran fired rockets at bases in Iraq where U.S. military personnel were stationed. Now, once that happens, there's all these kind of fog of war questions. How big is the Iranian offensive? And is Donald Trump going to retaliate in a way that he threatened to on Twitter? and turn this into full-on war. Not only do we not know the answers to the questions in the moment, but neither of the combatants know the answers to the questions. Graf writes that Twitter proved a remarkable modern-day answer to the long-running challenge world leaders have faced in struggling to communicate between nations during unfolding crises. He has a bunch of very cool historical examples. I'm quoting from his piece here. He says, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, It took the U.S. Embassy in Moscow nearly 12 hours to encode one 2,700-word message from the Soviet Union, which was the equivalent of about five type pages. In turn, whenever the Soviet Embassy in Washington needed to send a message to Moscow, they relied on a bicycle messenger from the local D.C. office of Western Union. After he pedaled away with my urgent cable, one of the principals said, we at the embassy could only pray... He would take it to Western Union office without delay and not stop to chat on the way with some girl. At the end of the crisis, Nikita Khrushchev read a letter aloud over Radio Moscow to make sure Washington would get it faster. And in fact, as Graf points out, when you have a crisis like Iran and the United States are undergoing, it's really important to write things down to avoid any mistranslation or garbled message or misunderstanding. Right. You have to be able to tell the other country exactly what you're thinking in the moment. Mm -hmm. So way back when the Americans and Soviets had this so-called red phone installed, which is really a teletype machine. Um, But fast forward to 2020 and Tuesday night after the rockets were fired, Iranian foreign minister Javad Zarif got on Twitter and posted this. Iran took and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter targeting the base from which cowardly armed attack against our civilians and senior officials were launched. We do not seek escalation or war, but will defend ourselves against any aggression. Translation, we're probably finished, right? This is not going to be a wider attack. Twelve minutes later, we hear from Donald Trump. All is well. Missiles launched from Iran at two military bases, dot, dot, dot. So far, so good. We have the most powerful and well-equipped military anywhere in the world. By far, I will be making a statement tomorrow morning. Translation, I'm not being as belligerent as I was on Twitter earlier. Graf continues that neither Trump nor Zarif tweeted again all night. And after weeks of frenetic activity on Twitter by the president, 100 or more a day, sometimes Trump's 13-hour silence on Twitter by the time he took the stage at the White House. 
marked one of the longest periods of online calm since the start of the Ukraine scandal in the fall. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, is it too much to say that this was like one of the one of the few nice stories, one of the few useful stories ever to come out of Donald Trump's Twitter account or Twitter more generally? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is definitely an uh, a uh, eye opening um piece it's one of the few it's one of these few pieces that i was actually just like really surprised surprised at the argument and uh surprised read that we've covered in like the entire history of this podcast um <laughs> and it was and uh yeah and yeah like i said really eye-opening i mean this is it's an incredibly it's an, it's it's a really interesting story and a really interesting uh point of view on this whole thing and i mean i'm i mean i i've been sitting here the past you know 24 hours just sort of shocked that we are not in the middle of a war already um and that you know the parties involved were um able to you know negotiate and i use that term loosely a you know some sort of you know peace for the time being or whatever and, and um yeah and at least this is really this, a piece yeah and this is a very compelling um explanation as to why i mean i guess the one thing that this story doesn't quite deal with it, I guess would be the next frontier if we're talking about this being useful is so we're imagining that the Trump tweets that come out once combat has begun are measured and clear versus the Trump tweets that we read like on Monday, which are not measured and often totally unclear. Like, you know, the idea that you have these formal communications between nations that are at this point with each other. The idea is that lots of people are looking at this and every Mm -hmm. word is fussed over because they know everyone on the other side is going to read it. Well, like, Mm -hmm. what was it? 24 hours, 48 hours before Trump was threatening to bomb Iranian cultural sites. Yeah. But I guess I guess the counter argument there is that Trump is so belligerent. And so bonkers on Twitter normally that when you read that statement 12 minutes after the Iranian statement about the attack, then Iran has at least some mild assurance that the U.S. isn't going to go any farther. Well, I mean, and and maybe one of the one of the odd positives of, you know, Trump's Twitter presidency is that is that there's there's room for uh, for rewrites right i mean you can you can tweet one way and then tweet another way and uh and presumably there is some back channel communication where you can you can direct um you know your your peer in the in the in, in, in you know another country to be like no 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 just ignore the tweet from 1206 uh the one at 1211 is the one we really mean and um you know it it, it seems like whatever editorial process went down and we talked about ghostwriting earlier this week I mean, whichever the, the tweets that have been determined to be meaningful apparently won the day. And and thank goodness, by the way. Absolutely. Let us talk a little bit, David, about Facebook and the election, because there were three right. stories this week. I want to take I want to pull your attention toward uh, the big one today. Thursday is that Facebook said they're still going to allow lies in political ads. Number one. And number two, you can still micro target those ads. Facebook exec quoted in the New York Times says, we have based our policy on the principle that people should be able to hear from those who wish to lead them, warts and all, and that what they say should be scrutinized and debated in public. 
This, of course, follows Twitter banning political ads and Google limiting them somewhat. Okay, that's story number one. Story number two is, again, in the New York Times, written by Kevin Roos, Shira Frankel, and Mike Isaac. They got their hands on a memo written by a Facebook exec named Andrew Bosworth. Now, Bosworth doesn't want Trump to win re-election. He thinks not changing Facebook's rules may lead to Trump's re-election, but he used an extended J.R.R. Tolkien analogy to explain why Facebook shouldn't try to hurt Trump's chances. I'm quoting Bosworth here. I find myself thinking of the Lord of the Rings at this moment, specifically when Frodo offers the ring to Galadriel and she imagines using the power righteously at first, but knows it will eventually corrupt her. As tempting as it is to use the tools available to us to change the outcome, I am confident we must never do that or we will become that which we fear. Can we get binge mode in here? Because <laughs> I'm not sure I quite remember that moment. Mallory, <laughs> is Mallory around? She's got to be in the studio next door, right? She, has, she can't be that far away. The fate of the 2020 election hinges on on that reading of the Lord of the Ring. <laughs> I like it. You do. So you're happy. This is the, you're, you're good with this. We should not, we should like Frodo or Galadriel, not, not use our power, not use, not use Facebook's awesome power to try to swing the election. No, I'm just sympathetic to any argument that cites the Lord of the Rings or any fantasy <laughs> epic. I don't, I don't, I'm not really making a comment about the, about the actual content here. Yeah, it is. It is a little weird that you went in our Star Wars, in our kind of Star Wars obsessed, Watchmen obsessed, even Game of Thrones obsessed time back to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but maybe that's yes. just the uh, the age of Facebook executives. Uh, Bosworth goes on to call any comparisons of Facebook to nicotine wildly offensive. He compared Facebook to sugar. David, if I want to eat sugar and die an early death. That is a valid position, Mr. Bosworth wrote. My grandfather took such a stance toward bacon, and I admired him for it. And social media is much less likely, likely much less fatal than bacon. Wow. I don't know about you, but I feel great about where things are going in this country. (laughs) I feel fantastic. This this guy's like trying to be like Chuck Klosterman or something. I mean, what, you know, it's like. I got this out there and pop culture analogy, you know, like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 you, you, you're, you're, you're not a writer. Just, just, just run the, run the big thing. That's going to kill us all. Good Lord. Consider the slab of bacon, Brian. Last but not least, David, the Facebook teen Vogue caper, oh, man. Rachel Abrams and Cecilia Kang reported on Wednesday, teen Vogue published an article called how Facebook is helping ensure the integrity of the 2020 election. It had no byline, they write, and a glowing tone, so glowing that Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg shared the piece on social. Great teen Vogue piece about the five incredible women protecting elections on Facebook. Well, not long after the article was posted, a line appeared at the top of the story to signal it was a paid advertisement. Quote, editors note, this is sponsored editorial content. Abrams and Kang continue. Soon after, the sponsored editorial content label disappeared. And then the article itself vanished. <laughs> Somebody tweeted, what is this Teen Vogue? Uh, to that, the 
Teen Vogue account replied in a tweet that was later deleted. Literally, I don't know. Facebook, <laughs> after all that, Facebook came out and said, no, no, that was a real, which is not, which is a not paid for article. That article was absolutely real. Then Facebook came out and admitted that it was an advertorial. And they were wrong. Casey Newton made this point on The Verge, which I liked. Let us step back for just a moment here. Facebook is trying to tout its integrity as it relates to the election. That's the point of this whole manufactured thing. So it commissioned a paid-for article. We want you to think that we have integrity, so here's a fake article. Just think about that. (laughs) I mean, all right. Very, 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 very mealy mouth, very, very half-hearted devil's advocate here. I think that when the teen vote, when the teen vote Twitter account said they had no idea what it was, I think that's probably the most insightful thing. I mean, in the, about this whole situation, I'm, I'm I guarantee that uh, that both the Facebook and Teen Vogue, uh, who the the people from both sides who were involved in the production of this were utterly separate from any kind of it, whatever normal decision making process would have addressed these things in any in a different way, in a more responsible way, right? I mean, this is just like two PR teams that are like having a cocktail and high-fiving afterwards. I'm, I'm, you know, it's the idea that this is like you know, just the diabolical corruption of Teen Vogue's editor-in-chief or something is, is probably not true. However, I'm not sure that makes it much better. And from the Facebook side, you know, whoever is doing this sort of thing, 100% should know better. I mean, it's it's it, whether or not this is their, their nine to five, you know, this is whether or not this is in their normal job description, you have to know better than to do this sort of thing. It's just... <laughs> It's it just it's just so silly. I mean, whoever you had to know you were opening yourself up to the kind of exposure and to not actually navigate if you're trying to if you're trying to put one over on the world to try to not navigate the actual details of whether or not this was going to be labeled as an advertorial or paid content, whether or not you're going to figure out who the byline was going to be. I mean, that's to not to not talk about that stuff ahead of time is just like laughably stupid. And if you want to, if you want to convince people that you are going to safeguard the integrity of the election, you can also make all those executives available to actual reporters. Like, let's say Mike Isaac and Kevin Roos and everybody else at the New York Times. Like that, that would, that would also, Shira Frankel, excuse me, I want to leave her out. That would, that, that would also be a good idea. Yeah. And, and much more convincing than, than, than a paid for thing in Teen Vogue. Nothing against Teen Vogue, but really, that that was the idea. Yeah, well, they're trying to reach a whole new generation of potential Facebook users who are uh, constantly <laughs> being bombarded with this notion that Facebook is evil. I want to talk to you, David, about the case of the thieving sports writer, or maybe yeah. sports writer imposter. I don't know if you saw this, but last week, Minnesota Vikings tight end Kyle Rudolph caught the winning touchdown playoff game against the Saints in overtime. He was wearing gloves. When he caught the ball, as football players do, Rudolph writes on Twitter this week, a member of the media in the locker room after the game asked if he could have my gloves for a charity benefit. So I said, of course, and I will even sign them for you. Well, he got me. They were sold on eBay three days later for $375. Oh, my God. (laughs) The eBay listing from Purple Planet 19 is still up. Kyle Rudolph made the winning touchdown catch in overtime to beat the Saints. 
These are the actual gloves Rudolph wore in that game, signed by Rudolph and Black Sharpie. Comes with official team roster. Rudolph adds, it was not anyone that I knew, so it wasn't a local reporter I see daily or national reporter. Locker room was a zoo. I'm not blaming Kyle Rudolph for this because it seems like he was trying to do legitimately a menschy thing. But if after a huge playoff win that happens in overtime, that shifts the fortunes of both franchises, if not both coaches, if a reporter comes up to you in that kind of chaotic environment and says, hey, can I have your gloves because I want to sell them for charity? That is not a real reporter. You just, <laughs> there's, that's not going to be, if any reporter on earth actually wanted to do that and they shouldn't, that's not the time they're going to ask. They're probably busy. <laughs> As you're story. saying that. As you're saying this, a lot of like national NFL correspondents are like slowly sidling back against the wall and putting a pair of gloves in their back pocket and pretending they never had them. <laughs> I've seen a lot um, of fucking around going on in locker rooms, but never that kind. Yeah, I, I just you know I you know hey can I get can I get those gloves from you? I'm just they had a charity auction coming up. So great coincidence that you just caught the winning touchdown in a playoff game. Yeah. Story to, Story does have a happy ending, by the way. A guy named Jason King tweeted that he was the one who bought the gloves and he would donate to a charity of Rudolph's choice. So oh, that's nice. But uh, I was I was texting with Kevin Clark about this the other day. I was like, "Do we think this is some sports radio TV rando?" Because I'm naturally I want to I want to protect sports writers. I can't believe a sports writer would do this. But if it's some guy at a radio station holding a mic, I'm like, well, you know, within within the realm of possibility. He says. He thought it was just somebody who just snuck into the locker room because those are kind of lightly patrolled. Well, this is great. This sounds like an everybody wins sort of situation, right? I mean, the Kyle Rudolph gets to donate the gloves to a charity of his choice. The, the, he wins. The charity wins. The thief wins because he got his money. And uh, <laughs> we win. as media consumers win because we got to follow this, uh, this, this little online detective story for, uh, for 24 hours. It's like uh, royal content for sports uh, media people. <laughs> exactly. So a little listener mail. I love this one so much, David. This comes to us from Guy Degada, who sent us a recent episode of the NPR show Planet Money. Uh, the episode is about marathons, and it includes some vintage NPR audio. Now, David, I want you to listen carefully to a very familiar catchphrase uttered by a radio man in 1979. Wow. A look at jogging, produced by David Selvin. David, where are all these people running to? <laughs> well, Michael, they're not really running. <laughs> Dad, is that you? <laughs> uh, oh man, there's like there had to be at least like eleven people in the world who heard that and uh, when it was aired on NPR and immediately thought of us. So for those eleven people, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm uh. I'm I'm thinking it may just be Guy Degada. I don't know about you, but uh, but I'll take eleven. That's amazing. It was the same. It was the same intonation, David. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Maybe you were. Were you listening to a lot of Die Degada, Degada as a as a child? You think you weren't quite aware of it? Well, this is Guy. Guy's the guy who who sent us. He's the Twitter user. Who oh wait, who's the, the who's the host? Sorry, it's not the voice. Really? That was NPR guy from 1979. <laughs> 
Sorry. I, I'm on I'm on Ancestry.com right now trying to track him down. <laughs> I'm telling you. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, David, this uh, note comes from Gruns. You mentioned on the last pod about back-to-back tweets of World War III and Weight Watchers. Those sort of got tangled up. But do we have a name for this social media phenomenon where two unrelated yet serendipitously tied posts appear in your feed back-to-back? And he sends one along that was a note about everyone at, or a hundred people at college humor losing their jobs. And then the next tweet was national magazine awards. The freelancer support fund offers a reduced rate for freelance writers who wish to submit their own work to the national magazine awards. <laughs> so everyone oh loses God. their job. Next tweet is help for freelancers. Do we want to try to name this phenomenon? It's like ironic serendipity sort of or like a like a, a, a like a uh yeah like a like a mashup of two things it just has a sort of uh like ironic resonance you know someone's got to figure this out yeah i was thinking like it's the back to back it's the i don't know if you could do something with algorithm since sometimes those are you know it pulls something that seems relevant and turns oh, yeah. out to be completely irrelevant uh, algorithm I don't know. <laughs> anyway, if you have a good idea, please send it to us at the press box pod. Finally, this one uh, comes from me. I sent this into listener mail because David, you and I have identified a genre of journalism called the old guy still got it. Where a journalist <laughs> sits at the knee of Martin Scorsese or John le Carre and insists their new work is of a piece with their classic work. Well, I've got a new nominee. It's historian Robert Cairo. Because there's oh a piece God. in the art section of the Times today about I how Cairo, you saw it, donated his papers to the New York Historical Society, which is just really an excuse to talk about how cool Bob Cairo is. Now, I know he's 84 years old, so mm-hmm. let's do it. Let's 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 celebrate while we can. But I feel like I've read a lot of Bob Cairo appreciations in this in this vein lately. And mm-hmm. I am completely okay with waiting until he has another, an actual book out to break out the old guy still got it rubric one more time. But just, just, just take a breath. Just take a pause. We, Bob Caro is awesome. We got it. We, yeah. we are, we are, we're, if you read, I don't pretend to have read all of any of those books. Any, I wouldn't, I am not pretending. If you pretend to have read it or actually did read it, I'm really proud of you. But let's just take a let's just take a pause. We love the guy. He's great. He's a great guy. Old guy still got it. Bob Cameron. Do you remember when I, I don't know if you remember this? You remember back in the in our in the Halcyon days of, uh, of of hanging out in New York publishing circles? We had a group of friends who were in a book club in which they were endeavoring to read the entire Robert Caro Lyndon Johnson series. Yes, I cannot imagine a better way to like lose the friends you started with than to go down this path together. <laughs> we had another friend who may be a prominent journalist right now, who was reading all of Stephen King. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Every yeah. page. Uh, if he wants to identify himself, we'll let him. But what do you think was more fun, <laughs> reading all of Stephen King or all of Bob Caro? Actual question. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I think Stephen King would certainly have its, like, try. The, the problem is there's so much Stephen King that even that I mean. even at, it would get even repetitive. the best. Even the best Stephen King, yeah, would get would get a little bit repetitive. I've been watching a lot of old Stephen King movies lately, though, and they do not get old. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, to, to, if we're going to be talking about like wonderful genre writers, there is a little bit of like the George R. R. Martin and Robert Cairo, right? There's this sort of like in- exhaustive series that's never going to be finished. And so we just have to find ways to keep talking about them in case the next book never comes out. Absolutely. He's more reliable than George R. R. Martin, though. I mean, I, yeah, I think that. that's true. Time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Last week's headline about the disappearance of Nissan head Carlos Ghosn was Gone Going Gone. As usual, our readers are a lot funnier than we are. Chris Dealey <laughs> says it should have been gone out of the country by traveling lebanonymously. <laughs> That's terrible. Foxconn says, here today, gone tomorrow. Neil Savage says, and like that, he's gone. Kaiser shows a gift. <laughs> Demo, Harrison, and Jeremy Pike propose gone in 60 seconds. <laughs> which I really like, which I really like, but I think I just slightly favor the one from McGillicuddy and Will Holland, Gone Baby Gone. <laughs> little known fact, little known fact about the, the that'll, that hopefully this will appear in the Ringer All History someday, when uh, the entire staff of the Ringer was uh, tasked with trying to find a name for what is now the big picture, Sean Fennessy's uh, movie podcast. Everybody was spitting out names, various puns of like movies, the classic movies of of uh, Hollywood past. My suggestion, which I think had the highest approval rating, except from the man who's actually running the show, was uh, Sean Baby Sean. Um, it did not. <laughs> it did not get chosen. That was a huge whiff on our part. Yeah. Sean, I'm just going to start calling it Sean Baby Sean. That's amazing. <laughs> Today's headline, David, comes from Jeff Denning. It's from the National Bureau of Economic Research. I love when people send us the academic journals because when those <laughs> guys too. try to be funny or gals. I feel like it's kind of unfair, but I love them every time. It's just <laughs> yeah. great. This, this headline is a top, and I'm, I'm not making this up, working paper number 26502. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The authors did a study about whether your older sibling going to college correlates with you going to college. Are you more likely to go if your older sibling goes? Are you more likely to go to the same college as your older sibling or a better college? Okay. That's the general gist of the story. This is going to be a big leap. So let me get you started with, it's a pun on the name of a beloved Coen Brothers movie. What was the National Bureau of Economic Research's strained pun headline? About your siblings going to college? Mm-hmm. Um, it is very strange. Okay, let's whittle this down. Um, not Lebowski. Uh, no. prob- probably not No Country. Blood Simple has a possibility. Um, uh, Fargo, no. I mean, I feel like Raising Arizona, there's some thematic stuff there, but I don't think I don't say that would be a good headline. Um more in the comedy, oh, more in the oh, comedy. Brother, oh, 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 brother. Oh, brother. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got, I, I, wanted, I wanted to keep going. I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to be yeah. able to, you know, eliminate all the way up to uh, a serious man. But, um, uh, <laughs> burn after reading, might there might be something there. Okay. So, oh, so I, I, I judge from your voice, it's, oh, brother, oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, brother, if your sibling going to college influences whether or not you go to college is the idea. Mm hmm. Oh, brother. Where you might go to college. Oh, where you might go to college. Uh, So, oh, brother, where. 
<laughs> I have no I'm, idea. I'm, I'm looking at it and it's so bad. You may just oh, give brother, it to me so we can make fun study, of it. Oh, oh, brother, where study. Oh, brother, where attend. Oh, brother, where. Uh, A little closer. It's, oh, brother, Bart. where start thou? <laughs> Sibling spillovers in college enrollment. All right. Oh, brother, where start thou? Congrats to the National Bureau of Economic Research for appearing in this segment. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media. Talk to you then, David. See you later, Brian. Yeah. Where are all these people running to? <laughs> Dad? Is that you? <laughs> uh, oh, man. This is this has got to be one of the great media moments of all time. Yeah. Do we want to try to name this phenomenon? Um, just think about it. <laughs> I mean, I want to talk about this first David is Pure intravenous content yeah. for the world press. Is it just about the money? I don't know about you, but I feel great about where things are going. <laughs> I feel fantastic. I like it. You do. So you're happy. This is the you're you're good with us. We should I like not it. I like it. Translation. I'm not being as belligerent as I was on Twitter earlier. Alright. Hey, can I have your gloves? Okay. Yeah, it could be your personal collection. I don't know. Oh, brother. Ooh, ooh, ooh. All right. That that was the idea. <laughs> Telling you, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, and thank goodness, by the way. Absolutely. On the one hand, is we want to change our lives. We want to. We don't want to be. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't pretend to. We all understand what they're going through. We do. But what do you think was more fun? 